Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Christian Espinosa, founder and CEO of Alpine Security. Christian is a cybersecurity engineer, a certified high-performance coach. He's a professor and lover of heavy metal music and spicy food. He's also an Air Force veteran and Ironman triathlete. He used to value being the smartest guy in the room, only to realize that his greatest contribution to the fight against cybercrime is his ability to bring awareness to the issue through effective communication. Christian is a speaker, coach, and trainer in the secure methodology, helping to make the smartest people in the room the best leaders in the field. This was a great conversation as Christian has shed light on one of the big problems with very smart people, and that is that they're often not great people people. Uh, In this conversation, we get into the book that he's written, uh, Smartest Person in the Room, as well as talking about the uh, lack of people skills that we often find in our technical leaders uh, or in, just in our technical performers. Uh, we talk about the myth that IQ and EQ are mutually exclusive, and Christian shares the training that he put his own people through to help close some of those gaps. There's a ton in here, whether you are in cybersecurity or any other technical field or really any other consulting field where you're working with and among very smart people, uh, there's a ton of lessons in here that you can take away on how to perform better. Without further ado, here is Christian Espinosa. And we are live with Christian Espinosa. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks, O'Brien. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited for this. This would be an interesting conversation because you are a technical expert, and yet you've dedicated a a portion of your life and career to helping other technical experts be better people leaders. And I think that's a a fascinating topic to dive into. To get started, would you just sort of give us a little bit about yourself? Would you pitch the work that you do with Alpine Security and Cerberus Sentinel? With Alpine Security, that's a company I founded in 2014. I started the company to do things differently and to focus on a few niche areas. So we are purely cybersecurity focused. And one of the areas we focused on are medical device, cybersecurity assessments, and penetration testing. I have a huge interest in cybersecurity and from the perspective of how it can impact somebody physically or how it can impact something physical. So with like medical devices, for instance, the risk is much higher because if somebody can hack into a medical device like a a drug infusion pump and increase the flow rate of morphine, for instance, you can actually kill somebody. So I would hate 
for like the advances in in healthcare and in health technology to be you know kind of held back because of cybersecurity risk. You know, the last thing you want is your you know your child or your grandmother that's on some piece of a life saving equipment to have a problem because that equipment's been hacked. So it's something I'm passionate about. And then like aircraft assessments, we do that as well. So we assess you know the cybersecurity of aircraft. And ultimately, we're a cybersecurity company, but like I said, we've niched it down to a few things. And most of that is around what's called penetration testing or ethical hacking. And some people call it white hat hacking, where the you know the good guys are doing the hacking. And Cerberus Sentinel is my parent company. They acquired Alpine Security in December, this past December of 2020. Uh, so we're a wholly owned subsidiary of them. And by coming under the, their umbrella, they fill a lot of the gaps uh, that, that we as Alpine Security for things we didn't do. Like we didn't do instant response. We didn't do a lot of auditing. We didn't do um, a security operations center. So our portfolio has grown and our capabilities have grown as part of that acquisition. Interesting. And when you say white hat hacking, is that the same thing as red teaming? Yes, it's it's, it's confusing in the industry because there's a yeah. lot of like, White, green, blue, purple, all these terms. So white hat hacking just means an ethical hacker. A black hat hacker is a criminal. Okay. So a red team is sort of a subset of a white hat hacking where you have a team of people that try to get into an environment in various ways. It could be technical. It could be trying to break in through a door, pick a lock. It could be you know social engineering, trying to uh, poses the, the UPS delivery person and deliver a package to the data center. It's using all those combinations of tactics together. That's, okay. that's the red team. The principles are kind of the same where you're, whether it's in the real world or in the virtual world, you are pressure testing symptom, uh, systems s- before a bad guy does so that you can find the holes and, and plug them. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Pressure, pressure testing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. I need I need simple language for myself. So no, I I'll love it. Yeah. Back. <laughs> and so, what's your origin story then, as to how you got into that work? I used to be in the military. I was in the Air Force, so my I went to the Air Force Academy. My first job was in the Air Force. Uh, uh, it, I went to communication school, so my career has been focused on communications and computer systems in the Air Force. It started out that way, and while I was in the Air Force. We have like secret data we have to protect. You know, we have secret networks. So my, I, I always had always had an act an aspect of cybersecurity uh, in my job at, from when I started. And then I I just sort of like honed in on cybersecurity when I uh, got out of the Air Force as well because I've always found it very interesting. Uh, because and like I I talked about my company, I, I think like defacing a website or changing stuff on a website is is okay. But what interests me more, uh, which a lot of people don't consider, is how everything is basically connected today. It's been connected for a while. And you know, from my computer here, I'm in Missouri today, I could attack a wastewater treatment plant in Australia and actually you know contaminate the water or, or cause it to flood and, and cause like you know physical damage through a logical means. And that's what's very interesting about cybersecurity me. And that's kind of why I'm focused on it. Even in the, the military, you know, with cyber war, I talk about cyber war a lot in my book, The Smartest Person in the Room. Uh, one of the 
the things that a lot of people don't think about is how cybersecurity ties into everything, like I mentioned. But even in warfare, if I can hack an enemy's electric, electrical grid, for instance, and take out their electricity before I fly my jets over, then there's no electricity to power like the uh, surface-to-air missile systems or the radar. So you know, taking that out initially increases our chances of winning a war as well. So there's like lots of different uses for cybersecurity that I find very interesting. Yeah, I, I remember reading an article about, I guess it's declassified now, but how the U.S. had hacked the Iranian enrichment program and uh, yeah, and had changed, had just tweaked their, I think it was their scales or their weight, their weights or some calculation, but just a minor, minor amount so that all of their testing kept going wrong to prevent the enrichment of uranium in Iran. And that it was just like, you know, one small tweak wound up, you know, setting them back a number of uh, decades in their quest to get a nuclear weapon. Yeah, Which I, I thought was interesting. And yeah, I mean, you can just ripple that out into any number of different areas. And it's one area that I think, if you think about it too much, can become a little scary. <laughs> it, it can, because if you just look around, half the things in your house uh, are connected to the, the internet. And a lot of those things have cameras or audio or microphones. And, you know, if somebody turned all that stuff on, they can pretty much watch you 24-7, right? Yeah. As one example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, we're not going to freak everybody out too much. This is a this, this show is about uh, people dynamics. And while I think that's fascinating stuff, I, I, I'm really interested in the book that you wrote and, and why you wrote it. So you, you already mentioned it. It's called The Smartest Person in the Room. Could you just sort of pitch the book and why you wrote it? The book is called The Smartest Person in the Room. It has a seven-step, what I call the secure methodology is targeted towards technical leaders. And one of the challenges we have as technical leaders is we have a lot of high IQ and low EQ people. And we've tolerated this in, in highly technical career fields, such as cybersecurity. It's the root of a lot of issues. And I've experienced those issues firsthand when I started my own business, Alpine Security. So with the book, I had that, that seven-step methodology to help technical leaders understand themselves better, become a better leader, and be better equipped to deal with their team, their high IQ, low EQ team, to help elevate their team's EQ or people skills as well. And, and all, all those seven steps, the seven steps are based on a lot of things I tried that worked, you know, and the things that didn't work, I left out of the book with my own company, because I struggled with this with Alpine Security. As a cybersecurity company, I hired extremely bright technical people, but a lot of the problems I was seeing from a, a leadership perspective were not on the technical side or from lack, like lacking technical skills. It, were, it was on the lack of awareness and lack of soft skill side when dealing with a client, for instance, and the client would get frustrated, you know, those, or, the, or the client would not understand. Do you have a, an example or two of what that might have looked like in practice? Yeah. So for me, one of the, I would say, it's kind of the defining moment that sort of like started me down the path of really addressing these issues. Uh, I was in a meeting with one of my highly technical engineers, and they were going over 
how a penetration test review session with a client. So like the results of our our ethical hacking. And my engineer kept saying that the client just didn't get it. He said, they just don't get it. And for some reason that like hit me very like, you know, viscerally that time. And I'm like, I didn't start a business for our clients not to get it. If they don't get it, they're not going to understand the risk. They're not going to understand the importance of what we're telling them. And they're not going to understand how to fix it. And they're going to be not, they're not going to be secure. Right. So that moment, maybe because I was like, you know, it was my business and and those were my clients and I had a different perspective, but it kind of shifted everything for me. And I started thinking back on my whole career and I had heard phrases like that throughout my entire career, like 30 years, you know, like management doesn't understand the users are stupid. They just don't get it. And, and these, you know, are the root issues in, in our industry and in, in highly technical career fields. So that started me down the path of fixing it because it, as the owner of the business and the founder, it was my responsibility to make sure our clients got it. I didn't want to be just, you know, a status quo company and not actually help our clients. Yeah. I mean, I know that you do cybersecurity, but I think that is related, like you said, to all technical skill sets or even you know, any type of consulting work, you know, anytime where your, your job is managing complexity for another client, you know, it's really easy to just fall back on, oh yeah, but they don't get it. Well, and it's like, yeah, that's why they hired you. They hired, they hired you so that you can make it easier for them. So what was the process like in trying to address that? I mean, did you try to address it directly and got pushback or like, what were the initial stages like? It was a long process with a lot of uh, trial and error. I you know, tried a lot of different things. I, I did uh, EQ skills training, communication training, leadership training, some NLP training, a lot of different tactics to shift the perspective of the people in my organization, of the highly technical people. And you know, I, I, through all that, I found... Uh, discovered quite a bit. You know, there's a there's some some beliefs out there that, uh, you know, I'm just not good with people is a common belief, uh, and if that's your belief, you're gonna do things that support that. For instance, so I had to like really understand, you know, the belief system a lot of people had because I used to be one of those people that uh, would talk over people's head and and say they just don't get it as well. So I took the journey myself. So I, I spent a lot of time with the trial and error and figured out what worked by you know training my team what got results, what stuck, what didn't stick. And and that's what I ended up putting in the book. But it was like, you know, from probably mid-2015 until, you know, end of 2020 or mid-2020 is like a five-year process, really. So I, beliefs is something that I think about a lot. And as I work, for instance, with our sales team internally, I work with some of our newer sales folks or, or at least newer to our organization and we talk a lot about what are the beliefs that you have? What's, what's the story that you tell yourself before you even walk in the door? You mentioned the one, you know, I'm not good with people. What were the stories that you were telling yourself in your head before the change? And what was the process like of changing your own story internally? So I, I was telling myself that this is just the way it is. Like, this is 
uh, how the industry is. This is just how the you know these highly technical people operate. I've seen this my whole career, so this is just how you know the status quo. I, I would tell myself, you know, I, I'm not sure I could change this. And, you know, there was a, a few moments in my career that I thought about leaving the industry because I, I was very frustrated with the personality types. So, you know, I kept telling myself, like, well, who am I to address this? And what skills do I have to address this, you know, this, this challenge? But then I also thought, why not me? You know, somebody needs to address it. I've got the experience. I, I, you know, when is the right time and who's the right person? Why not? Why can't it be me? Uh, and that was like a, a, a paradigm shift going from I, I, this is something that I can't control or can't influence to some, this is something I need to, at a necessity, address in my company because the company was funded by me. So there was necessity there that if, if I didn't figure this out, I wouldn't feel congruent with what we were doing as a company. I wouldn't feel good about myself and I wouldn't, my company may not survive. So there's also the necessity there that forced me to, to think differently and, and, and take the steps to, to address the issues. Were you able to flip that switch in your head and just start telling yourself a different story? Was it just, yeah, why not me? And then suddenly you were on that path or was, was there a lot of back and forth and negative self-talk you had to get over? There was a lot of back and forth initially where, you know, like I said, like, maybe I'm not the person to do this. This will be too difficult. This will be frustrating. What if I, what if I fail at it? What if, what if people think I'm stupid? What if they think it's woo woo that I'm talking about this stuff? You know, all these things go through your head, right? That I kind of went back and forth with that for a while. But then once I made the decision, I went all in. I'm a believer in like these three categories and, and decisions. You've got hell no. Hell yes, and maybe. And if something's in the maybe category, it's just taking up mental space. You want to get it out of there. So for a while, I was in the maybe category with this scenario. And then I shifted to the hell yes, which means I'm going to make it happen. I'm all in. It's, it's an actual decision, not just something I'm thinking about doing. Yeah. And then it doesn't matter whether there's a voice of doubt in your head because you've already committed the action to it. Exactly. Once, once, once I put something in the hell yes category... And I, I know I want to make this happen. I know it's important and I understand my why of why I'm doing it. Then the obstacles don't matter as much, right? They, I mean, they're going to, you could have obstacles no matter what, but you'll, you'll get through them more if you're certain this is the direction you want to go. Yeah. You know, I, I've experienced that in a number of different areas too. I think, I think everyone experiences that anytime they try to do something new and especially anytime they try to do something new and big. And I remember, so I, do I write on the side for fun. And uh, I decided a couple of years ago, my wife is a ballet dancer and she got a job on tour. And so she was going to be leaving for an extended period of time. And I said, well, I can come home every night and watch TV and be lonely, or I can, you know, try to do something with my time. And I'd always wanted to write a novel. So I said, you know, look, there's not going to be any better time than this. And so I had a story in my head and, and said, okay, I'm going to commit to this. And Every night I would come home and I would sit down and I would write for an hour or two. And almost every time without fail, there'd be a voice in my head saying, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You're not qualified to do this. You know, you're a fake. You're a fraud. You don't have the skill set. You don't have the time. Like, I mean, all the things that you could possibly think of to try to talk myself out of it. But I just I was like, well, no, I have this period of time. I'm committed to this project. And eventually, you know, I, I wound up 
typing the end and I was at the end of the story and it was like, but the only, the only reason I got through it is because I had decided I had committed to the action, no matter what the voice in my head was. And I think, you know, there are probably plenty of other areas in my life where I wasn't committed to the action and I let the voice in my head talk me out of whatever the thing was. So I, th- I think that's something people deal with all the time when they're trying to do something big. So I, sorry, I would kind of went down the rabbit hole on that one, but I, I thought that was really interesting. How did you help others through that change? So if somebody on your team says, well, I'm just not good with people, what was your process to change that belief in their head? There were there are a few things. It you know, depends on the person. One process I would have is to, when people say they're not good with people, I would ask them how many people they have in their lives. And of all those relationships are flourishing. Because a lot of highly technical people, they'll say that, but they have parents, they've got children, they have a spouse. So they, they'll say that in a compartmentalized way, like, I'm just not good with people at work, but I still have these other people around me and they're probably not that good with them either. So it's like, if you improve in this one area of your life, it'll help with everything really, because you're going to interact with people no matter what. I don't know too many, you know, unless you live in the Brooks Range in Alaska or something by yourself, most people interact with another human being. So these are like skills, life skills that will make you more valuable and help you overall, help you feel feel more happy and and more fulfilled. And then the other thing is when you start looking at like a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, most people will put themselves in the category of a growth mindset, meaning that they're capable of learning new things, that their traits and characteristics are not just like fixed. And if somebody puts themselves in a growth mindset and you get them to basically say that's that's how they believe themselves, then then if they say they're not good with people, that's incongruent with who they think they are. So the, the next logical step would be uh, if you have a growth mindset and you're not good with people, you will believe that you can get better with people. You just have to take the steps and take the practice. And so are you, were you talking with your team to challenge them to say, well, are you, do you have a growth mindset or are you fixed mindset? And and having that conversation, were you pointing it out that directly to them? No, it was not like that directly. It's more like here's a couple of different mindsets and let people choose. You know, if you if you throw things out there, people will naturally identify with one or the other. Like if you say, "Are you a leader or are you someone that just uh, you know doesn't care about your life or whatever?" Right? People are going to identify with the thing that that like gravitate towards a specific title or status or something. Uh, like a leader, for instance, uh, same thing with growth and fixed mindset. They're going to gravitate towards the growth mindset because because most people want to have a growth mindset. There's very few people that are going to say, you know what? I raise my hand. I have a fixed mindset. I don't think I can change or anything. Very few people will say that. So if you just like put the the options out there, people will choose one. And then the trick is, and the challenge is is to pr- provide a situation that given their choice of which they identify with, the situation would naturally, they'd have to choose a a specific reaction to it or path. And what did you start to see from your people that told you that you were making progress? Like when they did start to make some of these changes, what are the things you started to see happen? One of the main things I started seeing happening was improvements in our 
customer experience. So our interactions with clients improved dramatically. And in my team, I noticed would actually start taking the perspective of the client sometimes. In the past, if a client was giving pushback on, you know, if we rated something like a critical risk or a, or a high risk, in the past, my team would just say, this is just how it is. Uh, you know, I'm going to leave it this and the client can just do whatever. But after the, you know, the shift, my team would have a conversation with the client and really understand like where they're coming from. And, and actually, in some cases, argue with me about changing something on the, you know, because they understood the client's perspective and how like, well, you know, I thought it was initially a high risk, but it's actually medium because once I talked to, you know, client X, they explained uh, how their system works and how and they, I, I better understand it. So it was a, it was a big shift really. And that's just one example. That's great. It's probably, it's funny. They probably were pushing back on you and you were like, well, Hey, why are you pushing back on me? And then it's like, Oh wait, it's because this is working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That just, that just happened the other day, actually. And it was kind of ironic because in the past, uh, one of my um, engineers would always argue for a higher risk rating. Cause he's like, this is a major problem. And just like, uh, I think it was like two days ago, I was on a Zoom meeting with him and he was like arguing to lower it. This is the same scenario I just went over. It just, it just happened a couple of days ago. It's very interesting because he had this long conversation with the client and really understood where they're coming from, which, which was a new, a new perspective. Yeah. So let's take him as an example if we can, because I think the more <clears throat> examples of this, the easier it probably is for people to see where this is showing up and, and what they can do about it. So what path has that person walked since you identified that as, as an issue for them, like what kind of training have you pulled them through to help change their perspective? There's been a lot of training uh, with emotional intelligence training, uh, the NLP training. And what uh, you said NLP, what is NLP? NLP is a neural, neural linguistic programming. Okay. Uh, and since I, I deal with highly technical people, uh, it's a concept that, that resonates quite a bit. It's basically about how we have these neural pathways in our brain. Uh, and they're, they're strong neural pathways, which is like a super highway. And if we have a habit, there's a strong pathway there that is part of that habit. So if we hear a trigger, like if somebody says something or does something, it'll trigger this program in our brain that just automatically runs and you know, before we know it, we ran the program and we're unaware of it. So a lot of what I talk about in the book is awareness of these patterns and the triggers. And one of the examples is like one of the people on my team, he used to be picked on a lot by his uh, older brothers growing up. And most of us have something from, you know, ages zero to seven that sort of impacts the rest of our lives. And, and this was it for him. So he always felt like he wasn't smart enough. Like, and, you know, people are going to pick on him. So when he entered conversations with the clients, he was always afraid they're going to ask him something he didn't know. And he might feel stupid. Like he used to feel when he was younger. So that awareness helped him understand, like there's this program that goes and runs in my brain that if people say certain things, I'm automatically thinking they're attacking me. I'm automatically getting defensive and I have awareness of that. So how do I hit the control C or stop that? And that's where you have to have the awareness of the trigger, awareness of your program you run, 
which is like a malicious program or malware half the time. And then you have to develop a new uh, neural pathway. So the new neural pathway starts like a muscle in your arm. You know, when you first start lifting, it's small and weak, but it gets bigger and stronger over time and you get stronger. Same thing with your brain and these, these neural pathways. The new habit is going to be very weak at first and easy to break. But the more you exercise a new habit and the less you do the old habit, the stronger the new habit neural pathway becomes and the weaker the old habit, you know, what now becomes the old habit pathway becomes. So what does that actual training look like? Like, you know, you, like you talk about, you know, you got to go to the gym, you got to train that muscle. What does that training look like? Is it just every time they go talk to a client now, they prime themselves and they just build up to get better at it? Or is there some actual training that you do with your people to get them through, to get them building those pathways faster? For the training for my company, what, what I did was every Thursday for like an hour or an hour and a half, we would have a, a meeting where we would go over one of these topics. So that was part of the training. We also had some training in person you know, before COVID happened and we could still get together where we went over like the 14 NLP, NLP presuppositions and had discussions about them. And specifically, how they that you know the, those concepts would apply to a, you know a conversation with a client, to a course if we're teaching the course, to uh, working together as a team. Uh, so going through the training together, in addition to like the weekly sessions, and it was more of a a repetition thing. We had to go over a lot, is what ultimately shifted my team. Yeah, it, it's funny that you that we're talking about this now because. Just yesterday, a friend sent me an article and it was about sales, but it was talking about how often we want to uh, try something new. We want to, you know, rehearse a part of the meeting, you know, or change how we approach a part of a conversation and we'll practice it one or two times and then we'll go out and we'll practice it with a prospect, right? If you're a salesperson and, you know, each time that you're out with a person, you're practicing on that person. The problem being that you're practicing with real money on the line. And what this person was recommending was to sit down for like 30 minutes and just drill it over and over and over and over and over again to the point where you're bored with it. You know, you just, it just is repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. But what that's doing, I said what he didn't say, but is related to what you're talking about is it's keying your brain to drill those new pathways, right? It's, it's creating those grooves so that when you get in there, it's just automatic. You've already said it a hundred times. This is just the hundred and first. It's not the 10th, you know? So it's just, it's a much easier process and you can get it right with your coach or your trainer or your sales manager, or whoever you're dealing with. You can get it right there and then just drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it. And eventually you're better when you show up in this situation. So I, th I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't heard that from a sales training standpoint. I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, you're saying you did the same thing from a technical competency standpoint. Yeah. And that it's, it doesn't matter what the topic is. It's just, it's this idea that, you know, we have neuroplasticity in our brain, our brain's capable of like learning new things and learning new habits, but we have to really focus on it. Uh, and, and what you said there kind of reminded me uh, with the sales training of, of doing versus being, you know, a lot of people like to do things, but if you're, if you're in the habit of just doing something, it's easier to like get off track or forget about it. 
if the pressure's on or if something goes off script. But if you rehearse this so many times as part of who you are, that that's less like, which is being, that's less likely to happen. Which well, and that goes back to yeah. your beliefs about yourself, right? And the story you tell yourself, you know, I'm exactly. a, I'm a person who is the technical expert, right? I'm the smartest person in the room versus I am somebody who helps people understand, you know, exactly. that the story that you walk in with shapes the interaction that you have. Yeah. Our identity, you know, is, is made up. A lot of people don't believe that, but we've made up our identity and we have this thing called our ego, which does everything to protect this identity we've made up. Just like you said, if I'm, if I tell myself my identity is I'm the smartest person in the room, my ego is going to find ways to make that true. Yeah. Well, and just this whole thing is interconnected because you're talking about the growth mindset too. And, you know, I think one of the hardest things about growth mindset is that you have to change the story that you tell yourself. Even if you've done the work and you've defined, you say, this is who I am. If you're presented with information that shows that that is not serving you or that that's creating some larger problem in the world, like you have to, if you really have a growth mindset, you need to address that and you need to change that part of yourself. You need to either change that part of yourself or change how it shows up in the world. And I think a lot of people get said in that, well, this is just the way I am. That's right. The thing is, uh, lie is part of belief, the word, right? So <laughs> you could have a belief, but it could easily, this is easily be a lie, right? So, so yeah, you have to change those beliefs to uh, shift your identity. And what I had kind of cut you off getting into the neuroplasticity stuff, but you had mentioned EQ training too. What does the EQ training look like? The EQ training is emotional intelligence. So that would be things such as looking at the world through uh, the eyes of somebody else's perspective. Uh, so having, you know, realizing that not everyone has the same model of the world as you do. And that's what makes us unique. You know, we, and I, and I used to have these same problems. I used to think, you know, I'm a very driven on a disc assessment. I'm a very high D. So I would be just be like, make decisions, get stuff done, move forward, you know, just, why don't people take risks? Just very like one way. When people didn't think the same way I did, I used to believe like, what is wrong with people? Why can't they think the same way I do? And it took me a while to like change that paradigm because I used to want to be the smartest person in the room. But what I realized is, you know, everyone has their unique gift and their different model of the world. And that's what helps us come together as a, as a group and achieve more. For instance, I don't like processes. I don't like procedures. I don't like compliance. I don't like any of that stuff. <laughs> so I'm horrible at it. I can do it, but I'm horrible at it. So it's it's great that other people like that because that complements me and helps me grow my business because those are things other people are really good at. They don't like the stuff I like, but I don't like the, st the stuff they like, but together we make a, a better team, right? So it's the perspective as part of it, the model of the world, as well as empathy you know, from an EQ or emotional intelligence perspective, empathy is extremely important. And I think with our society today, we focus a lot on differences. You know, everything is about this person's a Republican, this person's a Democrat, this person's this, this person's that. It's always about the differences. And when you're only looking at the differences in people, it's hard to be empathetic. But ultimately, we're all humans. We all have uh, a lot of the same struggles, the same insecurities, the same, you know, 
difficult parents growing up. We've, we've got a lot more in common than we realize. So from an EQ training perspective, it's shifting that to look at you know, what we have in common because that helps you build rapport and helps you realize, you know, I'm not the only one that feels like this way. You know, Sally over here, who, you know, is my manager, has the same struggles as I do. And I'm like the, you know, engineer. So it's it, it, it helps with that uh, emotional intelligence or the people skills, really. And, Those are just what, a couple areas. Yeah. No, that's great. What does that training actually look like? Like, how, how do you open people's eyes to that perspective? So we've done it a couple ways. Uh, one way we had a facilitator come in. So you know, sometimes it's 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 better if you have an organization have a third party come in, someone impartial to you know any inner drama or whatever, and walk through a lot of different activities and exercises. That's you know one of the things we did. And some of the activities would be looking for those similarities, for instance, like having somebody, you know. Find, learn two new things about somebody, the, the person next to them, and then discussing those two new things and, and learn two, two, two new things about them as well, like two non-related work things, right? Like hobbies or something, or have someone explain like what the most difficult moments from their childhood was, you know, and just as an example, just sometimes the right questions and opening up the discussion helps people understand that we have more in common than we do differences, really. And I imagine you do that enough that builds new pathways in your brain and ties back to what we were just talking about. Yeah, it's, I don't, you have to do it a lot, right? And it's like with my company, it, we we did a lot of training, but you have to also, you know, like why establish core values and you have to hold people accountable to the core values, which align with a lot of things we're talking about, like communications are one of our core values. Uh, like listening, listening carefully and responding clearly, you know, that that's a core value we have. So we go through the training, but we also have the core values, which dictates like what we expect from people as well in the organization. Because if you just do the training, but it's not part of your culture, it doesn't matter. It's going to soon be forgotten. But if that's the core value and everybody agrees to that, because you want to hire people that want to fit your core values. And for instance, the listen carefully, respond clearly. That's an easy reminder that if you're talking to a client or a prospect, you you need to listen to what they're telling you. And if you're a salesperson, you need to listen as well. A lot of salespeople like to talk, 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 talk. But, you know, in my organization, I would just have to enforce that and remind that over and over until it became, you know, that second class, second, you know, just second nature as as a, a habit that was formed over over time. But it wasn't like, you know, one set of training or two sets of training and, and it's like all clicked. It was like training, culture, and reminders, basically. And you have to hold people accountable as well. Yeah. Re- it sounds like, if I'm going to say back what you just said, you have to do the training, but then you have to reinforce it so it just becomes the way that people operate. It becomes the atmosphere that they live in where that's just how people behave. Exactly. Yeah. Were there any other big training or, or big elements that led into this transformation? I know we've talked about two of them. Were there any others that you think had an outsized impact? I think for me, I, I've done a lot of uh, personal development and, and deep work and I've had a coach like a, 
life coach for a couple of years. So I think a lot of, you know, this goes to leadership. Um, a lot of the, the transformation had to come from me myself. Cause I'm all, I've been a believer that the world around you is a reflection of you. So if I'm the owner and the CEO of a business, how the business is doing it is a reflection of me. So I need to change myself and become a better at leading myself and transforming myself in order to, to be rather than do be the, 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 the right person and a better person uh, and a better example for my organization. And then it's just, it's natural because it's part of who I am to, uh, you know, establish that culture. Uh, it's congruent with who I am, which makes it much easier. It's not just like, you know, some fancy mission statement on the wall. It's what I actually believe, which makes it easier to, for other people, if they know you believe it, they're more likely to do it as well. Yeah. What's the, that quote that I probably goes unattributed, but it's, you can't lead others farther than you've led yourself. Exactly. That's a good quote. Yeah. Yeah. One question that I have is I think about people who listen to this show and, you know, it's people leaders within businesses and, and people who want to be leaders of other people. And one thing we talk about or that I've talked about with other guests is how you build your team. And so I could see listening to some of the stuff that you're talking about and saying, okay, well, you know, I need to go out and I need to make sure that my technical leaders have these skills, that they have this ability. But at the same time, from what you've said, I mean, this is a pretty prolific problem. So it would be, you know, it'd be hard to find an entire technical team, depending on how big your team is, but to find an entire technical team that just has this stuff. So how much of this is something that should be screened for? And how much of this is something that we need to be training for? I think we should screen for as much as possible. So one of the mistakes I made early on in, in my career when I started my company is I would like had a, a list of priorities of what I would hire somebody for. And people skills and EQ skills weren't on that list. It was just basically, are they super technical? Can they do the job technically? And that, you know, resulted in a lot of challenges for me and a lot of problems. And, you know, ultimately that's why I wrote the book. So now I've, I've flipped the script and I look at pe- technical skills last, people skills first. But I don't just look if they have like EQ skills. I also have to look at, and we, we do an assessment called the Trimetrics HD assessment to look at someone's like motivations, their behaviors, you know, what motivates them? Like, are they motivated by just money or are they actually motivated by their why, you know, to, to stop cybercrime? What is the underlying reason uh, that they want to come to work every day? And looking to see if they're a good cultural fit as well. And they, you know, and we also ask people, like my organization has six core values. So any candidate we bring on or are thinking about bringing on, we run them through those six core values and ask them to give a scenario of where they've implemented a value like very similar. And only if they pass that stuff do we look at the technical skills. Because from my perspective, the technical skills are often called the hard skills. Uh, and then they are they are challenging to learn, but they're actually easier to learn, from my experience, than hi- than having hiring somebody with hard skills and trying to get them to learn soft skills. So hiring for soft skills and having them learn the hard skills is actually an easier path, from my experience. Interesting. I I would imagine a lot of people think it's the opposite. 
like, oh, well, we need people with the technical ability and, you know, we can teach them to work with the client versus, you know, we need to bring in people who are really good people, people, and then we're going to teach them the technical skill. A lot of people may think that uh, I would, you know, from my experience, I, I thought the same thing. And I had instance after instance after instance where the root issue was the technical people did not have the soft skills necessary to navigate that scenario. Yeah. I love the idea of the interviews too, where you have somebody demonstrate that they've already lived one of your core values. I think that's interesting. I've I've not heard that before as an interview question. Yeah. Like one of our core values is ownership, for instance. So we ask people to describe a scenario where they took ownership. Yeah. Is there anything else? I know I have a couple uh, more generic questions for you here as we wrap up, but is there anything else that you think that we haven't talked about that's key to this topic of transforming technical leaders into better people leaders? I think there's a lot of, there's some assumptions made that I think are contributing to the problem. Uh, One of the assumptions is that if I have a high IQ, then I must have a a low EQ, that they're mutually exclusive. And if I'm super intelligent, then, you know, like I said, everything else can kind of, you know, go by the wayside. But from my perspective, and I talk about this in my book a little bit, if you have a high IQ and you're super intelligent and you self-identify that way, then your life should be a reflection of that, not just how good you are with a computer, right? So we've tolerated th- this, this high IQ, low IQ, th- low EQ uh, for so long, though, it's, it's created a problem in, our, in cybersecurity and many, many technical industries. And we've almost made it acceptable that it's okay not to have people skills. Uh, I used to work with this guy where... He was probably one of the smartest people IQ-wise I ever knew. But he had this mindset like, you know what, I'm smarter than all these people, so I can just treat them however I want to or walk all over them. And we, as leaders, technical leaders, tolerate that behavior because we're, we're, we're living in fear to a degree like, what if we can't find somebody as smart as this person? And that toler- tolerating that behavior is contributing to a lot of the challenges in the industry, like the intellectual bullying, the posturing, you know, the smartest person in the room syndrome, all that stuff. So uh, I think from a leadership perspective, we need to shift the, you know, what we tolerate because I'm a believer that you get what you tolerate. And if we tolerate this, you know, mutual exclusive IQ EQ thing, then we're going to get it. And that's what we've gotten. Well, it's kind of like, you know, artists who feel like they have to abuse substances or live some crazy lifestyle, (laughs) you know, in order to keep the fountain of ideas coming, you know, and the reality is that that's just not true. I, I read Stephen King's On Writing, which is his sort of memoir slash writing instructional book, which is a fantastic book. But he talks about that because he was a pretty heavy addict for a long time and had you know, some of his most famous works during that period of time where he, I think there was one book he wrote that he didn't even remember writing uh, because he was so wasted every time he sat down to do it. And he says in there that that was a fear of his, you know, that it, that it wouldn't come without that. And sure enough, he sobered up and went on to produce even more great works. And so, but we do get these stories in our head, right? That this, this genius and madness are somehow linked and there's, you know, I can see how that translates into this 
this incredibly high intelligence, meaning that you sort of act aloof in these other ways. What are you most sick of talking about when it comes to this topic? Uh, I'm not really sick of talking about uh, people skills or you know that's the stuff we're talking about a lot of because I my background is cybersecurity. I get sick of talking about data breaches. When people <laughs> ask me about the latest data breach, I, I like I'm like so over talking about it because it's all the same stuff from my perspective. It's like somebody broke in, they stole X, Y, or Z, and there's like no point in talking about it. Let's figure out how to fix it, which is what I I don't get tired of talking about, and that's why I wrote the book, right? Yeah. I think. You know the the high IQ or low EQ problem we've been talking about is contributing to why there's those data breaches. Got it. What are you most excited to be talking about? Uh, I'm most excited to be talking about uh, the seven steps in my secure methodology. Because uh, the irony is, yesterday I was, uh, and I, I don't get tired of talking about it. Yesterday um, I was driving. And I just, my audio book just came out and I did not narrate it. So, oh, thank you. So Kaleo Griffith narrated it. So I was listening to it and it is, it's, it's different because he's narrating it. Uh, so it's not me, but I, w- I realized like I was incongruent with a few of the things I, I had talked about in the book even. So like, it like was, so I'm like, wow, I wrote about this, but I'm kind of doing this now. So I need to like, you know, step it up and get back to where I was. So you know, I'm passionate about that because even like my own message I wrote, the fact that someone else is telling it to me hit me a little bit differently. It made me think, hmm, I'm actually, like I said, I'm, 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 I need to like get back over here to in, in line with my own beliefs. So that's, that's so funny that just yeah. somebody else's voice reading your words makes them <laughs> land differently. It t- totally does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, there's a good point there too, which is that even once you've figured this stuff out, it doesn't mean that you stop. Right. These are these can be perishable skills too. They they have to be practiced. This is a question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. What is the purpose of business? The purpose of business is to fulfill a need uh, for somebody or an organization. That's that's how I define it. And you you want to to sustain that. If there's a need, you know, someone's going to exchange something for that need because they produce something or do something else. And that typically happens to be in the form of currency. So is it fair to say, to put words in your mouth here, that the the purpose of business is to fulfill a, a need and the way to best do that is through better human interaction? Yeah, I would say that. And so that's typically my last question, but I have one more question for you, which is, I was wondering if you could tell us how you became an instructor at the Bear Grylls Survival Academy, because I saw that on your resume (laughs) and thought that that was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. And I couldn't figure out how to work it in to the theme of the show, but I wanted to make sure I asked you. I was flying uh, on a British Airways flight to Doha and... uh, (laughs) There was an in-flight magazine, and it had somebody had written an article about Bear Grylls Survival Academy. And while I was flying there, uh, you know, on the plane, it was a long flight. I, you know, I flew from the United States to like London, London to Doha. Uh, and while I was flying there, I was reading this, this article. I'm like, you know, this just sounds so cool. I'm going to do this. So literally, when I landed in Doha, I took the the magazine from the plane, 
And uh, when I landed in Doha, like after I checked in the hotel, and this is after I'd been up like 30 hours of travel or something, I went to the website and I signed up for the next Bear Grylls Survival Academy, which was in Scotland. So that's where you're a student. And I went there and uh, it was awesome. It was, a, you know, it was a very unique experience. I learned a lot of you know great skills. I, I, used to, I used to be a big fan of Man versus Wild. Yeah. And then after that, I'm like, you know, this is awesome. What's the next step? The next step was the, the instructor training. So I went back to the UK and did the instructor training. And then I've, I've taught a couple like contract courses for that, but I haven't done much with it since then. That is, uh, that's super interesting. I love, usually it's not a good idea to make big life decisions or commitments when you've been up for 30 hours in a row, <laughs> but that one seemed to have worked out for you. Uh, good, good point. <laughs> no, that was, that, that caught my attention for sure. Well, <laughs> well that's, that's great. Christian, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you sharing your perspective and experience. I think there's a lot of really good, meaty, useful stuff in what you were talking about. You had a couple good one-liners that I thought were just really good guiding principles, as well as you know some of the deeper training that you were talk about, talking about, I think would be really impactful for people. So thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, O'Brien. I appreciate it. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.